possible that we might see record viewing the figures. Of shows renewed in May. Uh, having to reduce their advertising out there as well. pretty positive for the game. That has increased 17% year on year. Hello and welcome to The Amp, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. Welcome everyone to the latest episode of the AMP podcast. My name is Toby Holleran and I'll be your host in this episode. Today we've got three people from Ampere here to share some interesting research they've been working on. Firstly, we'll have Guy Bisson, who'll be talking about how licensing deals for US Ford services are shrinking. Then we've got Richard Cooper, who'll be talking about Netflix's localization strategy. And finally, Isabel Charnley, who will talk about how young people are driving quite a lot of the return to cinema following the pandemic slowdown. And also, given my news editor role for the AMP, I feel like once, rather than just me writing about the news, you can hear me talk about it as well. To start with, one of the biggest stories of the past month is probably Facebook changing its name to Meta, following in the footsteps of Google's rebrand to Alphabet, where it took some of the Google brands under the Alphabet Inc. banner back in 2015. Also in new developments, we recently had the HBO Max Europe launch, with it launching in Spain, Andorra, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and Denmark. So while it's not quite touched the entire of the Nordics yet, with uh, with Iceland missing from that, it's actually due to launch in Iceland next year. But one issue for HBO in particular, in terms of going direct to consumer, is existing distribution deals. So for example, in the UK, where Ampere is based, there's a five-year deal with Sky, which kicked off in 2020, which means HBO Max can't really launch here prior to 2025. Obstacles like this, especially as streaming companies are going increasingly direct to consumer, will ultimately have an impact on how these services end up licensing their content. So our first guest, Ampere's research director, Guy Bisson, will talk to us about how these content licensing deals with streaming services seem to be getting shorter and shorter, resulting in a seemingly drastic increase in the proportion of content licensed for 12 months or fewer on US streaming services. Guy, could you begin by giving us an insight into the figures behind that statement and what, in your view, has been the main cause of this rapid decline? Yeah, thanks, Toby. First of all, I think it's important to say that we were looking at acquired content. Obviously, the time that original production stays on platform is is very, very different and, and, and often in perpetuity on a number of platforms. But for acquired content, um, I really started with the thesis that what's the impact of a streaming market that is getting incredibly crowded? And what's the impact of a market in which large content producers are increasingly wanting their own content for use on their own platforms? With that as the starting point, we delved into the data to look at the average time that content stayed on a single platform. And what it showed very distinctly, and it was far more distinct than I had ever imagined, was that the proportion of content staying on platform for 12 months or less, indeed frequently six months or less, has risen drastically to around 70% of content. That's acquired content. Um, In addition, there's a slight difference between movies and TV shows. So movies are more likely to be on short licenses than TV shows. And so there's been a drastic shift from a median license period in the subscription window of 18 months just a few years ago to a, to an average or median of around six months. So big, big shift. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. 
as um, this is a recent trend that we've picked up in terms of this report that you've written, multiple windowing stages are nothing new. In what ways is the streaming market kind of mimicking legacy media? And on the converse side, how does this differ from what we've seen before? Yeah, it's true to say they're nothing new. I think um, first and second pay TV window, as we used to call it, um, was previously quite common. But I think it's it's more about the duration that we're seeing now. So um, content was previously in the traditional space licensed for for much much longer, sometimes eighteen months, sometimes several years. Now we're in a crowded market, so you'd think that the opportunity was to license to multiple players within that single window so that you jump content in six months blocks from one subscription player to another. Interestingly, that doesn't seem to be happening that much. There is a a little bit of that going on. And certainly exclusivity, which has always been key in the subscription TV business, is still the overriding trend. So we're not seeing content or the same piece of content crop up on multiple platforms at the same time. So what we are seeing is that sometimes it's jumping from one platform to another. And there are a number of examples, uh, talking of recent news, of studios doing these split-windowing deals. So Universal Pictures, for example, did a deal whereby uh, content jumped onto their platform straight from theatrical initially for, I think, six months, then jumped to either Netflix or Amazon for four to six months and then jumps back to their own streaming service for the remainder of the 18-month period. But what we're also seeing is content jumping between platforms and business models. So moving between streaming and then being shared between, say, an AVOD platform and a thematic channel business within the advertising-supported window. Um, And I think it's a reflection of the more complex market in terms of the number of players, the number of business models, the hybridization of business models, and and simply the evolution of the streaming market as a whole. I think earlier you touched upon there being slight distinctions between often how licensing deals between movies and TV seasons are slightly different. But um, can you dive into a bit more depth onto that and like how the different factors will determine the, the potential windowing length? Yeah, I think so. The trend, just to refresh people's memory, was that um, what we're seeing is that movies are more likely to be on a shorter uh, window than than TV shows within the streaming subscription window. I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, TV shows obviously are multi-episode, have a slightly longer life cycle within streaming in terms of consumer interest there's there's still a short sharp peak especially with box set drops but it's perhaps not as short and sharp as movies and there's more opportunity to move movie catalog around between platforms Uh, a related trend that we picked up was a a difference between uh, a difference and indeed a shift in what the major studios are doing and what some of the smaller content owners and independents are up to So what we saw was that there was um, a gradual increase among the majors in the proportion of licensed content that was on short windows. But then in the last sort of uh, 12 months, there's been a massively sharp drop in the proportion of content that's on short windows. So what I think that's a reflection of is as studios have pulled more valuable content off platform, 
that was previously moving to a shorter window. What's left is longer license period catalog content that is of lower value and less interest to them. And they're happy to leave it on longer licensing durations. And the exact opposite has happened among the independents. They've moved from longer license periods to shorter at the same time that the majors have done the opposite. So I think there are two um, pathways occurring here, and it's a, um, a reflection of whether the content owner has their own platform or not, which requires them to feed a constant and ready supply of fresh content. So uh, lo- looking ahead, who, who do you think are likely um, in terms of licensing or windowing, likely to be the winners and losers? Well, it's interesting, and back to a point I briefly alluded to earlier, you would think that this, therefore, is an opportunity for those who are still licensing content to uh, jump it around between multiple buyers within quite a short duration of time, and therefore do even more deals and hopefully get even more revenue than they would have done having been locked up into a longer-term deal. At the moment, we're not particularly seeing that. As as I say, it tends to be jumping about between business models rather than platforms within the same segment. But I think that's the opportunity and the potential winners are those who are still in the business of licensing content rather than in the business of supplying their own platforms. Thanks a lot for that, Guy, and for taking the time to have a chat with me today. Thank you. I'd like to now speak to um, another Ampere Research Director, Richard Cooper, on Netflix's wider localization strategy. So um, hello, Richard. Hi, Toby. What are the key drivers behind efforts to localize the production of titles? So I think we've got to bear in mind that you know, Netflix as a platform is, is really quite mature, and particularly in its uh, domestic market and those markets where you know, it launched uh, you know, coming up to a decade ago. You know, the volume of sort of subscriber additions has started to, to slow down. They are reaching uh, saturation points. So in order to continue uh, driving their subscriber growth, they need to move into other international markets and particularly into markets where, um, you know, their Anglophone-centric uh, catalogue is not necessarily uh, as desirable uh, as it is uh, in the US, the UK, and, uh, and Western Europe. So, you know, the driver there really is to to grow that um, subscriber base. One of the things that they're looking for in the territories that they expand to are, you know, a significant um, subscriber base that they can reach, you know, with the existing uh, infrastructure within that country. You know, they're looking for countries particularly where the average revenue per user, um, you know, particularly associated with pay TV or or paid uh, TV services is uh, sufficiently high so that they can go in with their uh, their typical offer um, and and not seem uh, overpriced. Uh, they're also looking for uh, territories where if they start to add titles to their portfolio, which they then you know, are putting out um, across all of the territories where they're, where they're present, you know, where those titles are, are quite portable as well. So they're looking for um, you know, particularly content which is likely to appeal to people um, who will watch it in uh, foreign language. And then, of course, they are looking for local titles in those markets where there is available uh, premium quality titles. So one of the things that we've seen, uh, you know, particularly in recent years, is a lot of premium titles have been pulled away or premium new release titles anyway, have been pulled away from uh, Netflix by um, their suppliers who've since become competitors, so the, the US studios, as well as some significant local players. So you know, th- those are the drivers behind you know, the localization efforts that, uh, that Netflix has undertaken. 
And we also have to bear in mind that, you know, Netflix has actually started to localize content in around uh, sort of 42 markets worldwide. So this isn't just isolated to, to one or two markets. This is a, a, a truly uh, global expansion. Yeah, it does. Um, I do increasingly find looking on Netflix how much more of this localized content is available. I know, I know that like there was quite a lot of um, stories floating around about how many times it took Squid Game before I actually got the green light from any service. So, but it kind of seems like Netflix is moving kind of away from the more experimental approach in terms of this localization to, to more a more formulaic strategy. So when analyzing this formula by different genres and content types, do any patterns come to light? Uh, absolutely. So I think we've got to bear in mind that you know Netflix is, as we were talking, uh, as we mentioned earlier, you know, quite a mature service. Um, you know, they've experimented a lot with, you know, what does and doesn't work in terms of sort of local original content. Um, but as they've expanded to more international territories, as they've sort of acknowledged that they, they need to sort of branch out into those international territories, what they've started to do is to follow a, a more predictable formula. And this is really what we've picked up on. So, you know, we first start to see um, evidence of this really uh, sort of back in Q1, Q2 of uh, 2019. Um, and, you know, this is the point where we see, you know, quite large spikes in original commissioning for um, countries like uh, Mexico in Q1 of 2019. And then uh, some of the South American countries in Q2 of 2019. Now, those initial uh huge spikes or relatively large spikes in commissioning contain um, you know a reasonable uh, reasonably high proportion so uh, sort of 30 to 50 percent of um, movie titles which is relatively unusual for Netflix um, and then a large number of uh, TV shows as well so we see this sort of initial spike in original content commissioning now over the months that uh, that follow that we see sort of regular TV show commissioning and then you know there's a repeat in that spike um some sort of 23 24 months later uh where we see a sort of secondary uh, spike in original commissioning now this is likely to be driven by um the sort of successes or otherwise of um some of those initial commissions because obviously you know when those commissions are announced they they spend some time uh, in production obviously so it does take some time for those uh, shows to come out before Netflix can actually sort of understand how well or not um those shows uh, were received the other thing that we do need to bear in mind when we're looking at this in terms of patterns for Netflix is that over the course particularly of the uh of the last sort of 6 to 12 months we have seen you know, quite a considerable increase in certainly the volume of international commissions generally. So whereas previously um, just over half of all of Netflix's original commissions were um, for the North American market being produced in North America by North American producers, uh, what we've seen over that sort of recent 12-month period is a shift where we've now got certainly in terms of the volume of titles – um, around 55% of, um, of recently commissioned uh, Netflix original titles actually stemming from uh, territories outside of, uh, outside of North America, and in particular, those non-English language speaking countries. So there's been a real sort of shift in that dynamic. Now, this isn't to say that um, you know, the majority of spend doesn't continue to be in North America, but certainly by volume of titles, you know, Netflix is starting to expand beyond, you know, its sort of traditional domestic borders. 
it's quite exciting, especially for consumers who are really interested in sort of like increasing like European content and other foreign language content as well, which kind of brings me on nicely to my next question. Because in the, in the report, there was one country in particular that you flagged up as being in line for extensive localization, and that was Poland. So why exactly um, do you think it's going to be Poland? Well, one of the key indicators that we uh, we see from Netflix that a country is going to uh, receive um, sort of additional uh, localization. Actually, it doesn't come from those um, sort of originally commissioned titles. It comes from the volume of local third party content which becomes available on the service. Now, we track that not through the commissioning app, but through um, our um, SVOD analytics. Uh, And we can see that actually in Poland, that local catalogue began to increase uh, quite dramatically uh, from about Q3 of 2020. So these were early signs that that Poland was really sort of next on the cards to be uh, localized by uh, by Netflix. Uh, and then in Q1 of 20, uh, 2021, so just uh, sort of two quarters later, we saw that um, spike that I was talking about earlier in Netflix um, original commissions in the country. So we saw uh, eight new titles being commissioned in a single quarter, four of which were movies, four uh, of which were TV shows. You know, this is a very, very good indicator that, um, you know, that Poland is in the process of being localized uh, by Netflix. Really, over the course of the next um, 18 to 24 months, we're anticipating uh, a further 16 uh, local Polish titles are likely to be recorded. um, And uh, around four of those um, will uh, likely be movies. In in terms of where Netflix may be looking next, what kind of areas could potentially be a a focal point for Netflix following Poland? Um, So geographically, um, I think there's going to be a a bit of a shift away from the focus on sort of European targets. You know, uh, know, we're likely to start to see uh, more um, original commissioning in some of the Asia-Pac countries. So two that I would pick out probably uh, sort of Thailand and Indonesia. So both of those uh, territories have this um, increased volume of uh, third party or local third party uh, acquisitions uh, within their existing catalogue. So, you know, we're likely to see expansion uh, in that area. There are some already some existing shifts in the type of content that, uh, that Netflix is commissioning. So whilst Netflix are typically known for large amounts of uh, scripted content. Certainly over the course of the uh, of the last 18 months, we've seen um, a shift um, towards um, unscripted content. So uh, more reality programming, more entertainment programming. And, you know, like a lot of, um, a lot of providers over the course of the pandemic, we've seen um, some increases in uh, documentary uh, commissioning as well. But it really is that shift towards uh, entertainment and reality. Uh, and comedy as well, which has been um, a bit of a change, really, for uh, for Netflix. Now, quite frequently, with a lot of that um, unscripted content, you know, they tend to be uh, less portable, so they don't tra- travel quite as well across um, international borders, uh, and, and partly that's because. You know, the language is tied up with uh, comedy and, of course, reality and entertainment as well. And they're not as culturally significant. So, um, you know, it's quite a departure from the um, uh, the formats that we've seen uh, sort of Netflix investing in um, in the past. Um, so that's also a, a change that we uh, that we anticipate um, developing over the course of the next few months. Thanks, Richard. It will definitely be interesting to see as some of these new newly commissioned titles start to land on Netflix and it really improves its localization. what impact that then has on its subscriber figures moving forward. 
Also in the news, we've got um, No Time to Die, the latest Bond movie, whose release was postponed multiple times due to the pandemic, has now been made available on the premium video on demand in the US. So um, that was after a 31-day window of theatrical exclusivity, and it's priced at $19.99. That, that being said, theatrical exclusivity certainly seems to be back in vogue, and we are seeing consumers beginning to return to the big screens. So analyst Isabel Charnley's research suggests that young people, in, sp- in particular 18 to 34-year-olds, are actually driving quite a lot of this return to the big screens, with this age group representing 48% of people in our latest Q3 2021 consumer wave who had recently gone to the cinema. Hi, Isabel. Hi, Toby. So can you begin by giving us an insight into um, how viewing habits have shifted since before the pandemic? Yeah, so... Before the pandemic, in terms of viewing films alone, going to the cinema was by far the most popular way to purchase individual films by consumers. In Q3 2019, the average number of theatrical film purchases per person globally was almost double that of physical film purchases such as DVDs, which was the next most popular way to buy films. And they were also purchased almost double the amount of digital film uh, in Q3 2019. Whereas now the picture is, is quite different. Digital films have become the most popular way to purchase films after theatrical purchases dropped because of cinemas closing during the pandemic. But it's interesting that theatrical visits haven't returned to pre-pandemic levels in a lot of places because across many parts of the world, lockdowns have eased and theatres are open again and have been for a few months. So this shows that there is still definite hesitation among consumers to return to cinemas. Particularly, this has been seen among older consumers. From the data, we can see that so far the return to the cinema is being driven by younger age groups, while older consumers are making much fewer cinema ticket purchases than they were pre-pandemic. It's also interesting to see the differences between markets, especially among the top box office markets that we survey. In China, for example, cinema was and still is a lot more popular compared to other markets, and it has also subsequently seen a much more significant bounce back there's much higher growth in cinema visits from its lowest point during the pandemic compared to the other top box office markets such as the USA, Japan and the UK who have seen quite minimal change from the pandemic levels of going to the theatre. For these markets, these changes represent less of a shift and more of an acceleration of trends that were already kind of in motion before the pandemic. You mentioned there was almost a bit of trepidation amongst kind of older viewers in terms of getting back into the cinema. So, so why, why, do you, why do you think there's a difference between older and younger people in terms of that and the fact that younger people are seemingly back in a much bigger way? Yeah, I think that there are obviously particular pandemic-related reasons. So you can kind of understand that although restrictions are easing and cinemas are opening, cases are still high across the world. So potentially it may be that because cinemas are, you know, they're an indoor place where you'll be sharing a room with a lot of strangers for an extended period of time, it may not be a risk that older customers or consumers are willing to take at this point, especially considering the large library of films that are available now from the comfort of their own homes via streaming devices and services. Our consumer data also indicates that younger people are more likely to desire the social experiences attached to their consumption of media. Younger people between 18 and 34 are more likely to kind of find it important to watch TV with others compared to the older consumers. And this is particularly the case among the cinema returner group, which kind of indicates that socializing is an important factor and may be an important factor in their return uh, and why older consumers aren't returning as quickly. 
Earlier, you, you spoke about how there was, there was kind of a variety in different markets, but has your research found that genre preferences play a role here? Like, and how much would you say this is a trend, the result of the types of content available to view on the big screen? Yeah, definitely. So it seems to be a considerable contributing factor. If you think about the films being released in the, let's say, the USA, for example, they are including predominantly action and adventure films, such as Jungle Cruise and the latest additions to the Marvel Universe. Um, so you had two uh, just in the last few months, um, as well as horror films such as A Quiet Place 2, which was one of the earliest blockbusters to be shown after a lot of the cinemas reopened. Um, and then there's the newest Purge film that came out. And these two genres are particularly popular among 18 to 34 year olds which I don't think is, is probably not coincidental. Um, and it's going to be ultimately more motivating if, you're, if the genres that you enjoy are being shown. You've also had family-friendly films across a variety of different genres making their way to the big screens. And um, subsequently, the most common household occupancy type among theatre returners is families with children. So it's clear that the types of films being made available in the cinemas is really an important factor in attendance by certain demographic groups. But these findings also indicate the potential for a greater return in the coming months as more and more films are released to cinemas um, that will appeal to a wider range of people, including older age groups who, in terms of genres, primarily favour crime and thriller. Interesting. Yeah, it does seem like franchises are quite a good way to kind of drag people back into the cinema. Like We've got the, the, the new Matrix film coming out, uh, I think, later this month. And, and because the first one came out in, uh, I think, the late 90s, so that, that will start to drive some of those older viewers who watched it when they were adults in the cinema back into the cinema. So, so just generally speaking, what do you feel the longer term impact of this, in, like younger viewers getting back to the cinema will be? I think overall, this data is is pretty promising for the theatre industry because it is suggesting that there is demand for the cinematic experience, particularly with this younger age group. The demographic of people are ones that typically consume a lot of content. They have um, they oversubscribe for SVOD services and they watch typically more hours of of content than the average person. So. The fact that they are consuming and purchasing all these different types of media, yet still deciding to go to the cinema and spend their money on theatre tickets is promising for the industry as a whole, because it suggests that attending the theatre and going to the cinema is an experience in itself that can't be emulated. Um, although, as I mentioned earlier, we may never see theatrical attendance quite reach pre-pandemic levels across a lot of the USA and much of Europe as the pandemic may have accelerated trends that were already being observed before theatre shut down. But this kind of thing is excluding, obviously, markets such as China, where the theatre industry has been growing steadily and is continuing to grow before the pandemic and now. For example, in 2020, the Chinese box office became the largest in the world. So China, for one, definitely doesn't seem to be following the patterns of the rest of the world. But in terms of the demographics that are attending the cinemas, it is likely that that as the risk of the pandemic lessens and more and more films are being released to cinemas in the coming months, the greater choice and the lesser threat will, will probably encourage the older groups to return back to the same levels that they were before. So the age distribution of theatre goers will probably return to normal again. And I, I think one big thing that some people seem to be waiting for is the big $1 billion box office smash of 2021. So whether that, whether that happened yet is uh, yet to be seen. But um, I believe looking at some of the um, data available there around box office, the 
two biggest titles at the moment of this year are both from China. So that, that ties in with what you were saying earlier. But um, that is all we have time for, I'm afraid. So thank you so much to everyone um, who's taken part in this podcast. So we, we had Guy who was enlightening us with some of the shrinking windowing patterns. Richard, who's flagged up that Poland could be a core new market for Netflix to really push some localization strategy in alongside some, some of those core Asia-Pacific markets like Indonesia and Thailand. And from Isabel, who was telling us about the growing number of foot traffic from the younger demographics as we slowly return to the cinema. I, I for one, am actually going to the cinema this weekend. So hopefully I'm representing the 18 to 34 bracket there. But that's all of it from um, the AMP podcast. So remember to please hit that subscribe button to subscribe to the podcast and make sure you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. And if you've got any more inquiries or curiosity about Ampere's research services, which is what really underpins the data that you've heard about today, then get in touch at info at amperanalysis.com or head to our website, www.amperanalysis.com. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you.